The Living Image by Scott Hancock Fear gripped the city. Elliot Matthews was running for his life. Until this point, his day had been the very definition of routine. He'd got up at the crack of dawn, headed out for work, and set up his stall in Old Spitalfields Market. The day had been slow to start, but they usually were. He took a break for lunch around midday, a few sly drinks, a bit more work, then as the October dusk began to fall, he shut up early. Nobody wanted to be out in London after dark. Now Elliot understood why. He'd heard all the stories, of course. He and the lads had taken ghoulish glee in sharing them with one another, often embellishing the details, competing to tell the most terrifying tale they could. They talked of monsters and demons, phantoms and spirits, creatures that stalked in the dead of night. But not one of them ever believed that these creatures might be real. Elliot didn't stop running. He wasn't entirely certain what it was that was pursuing him. All he knew for sure was that it wasn't a man. He cried for help and banged on doors, but nobody came to his aid. They'd heard the stories, too. He ducked round a corner, pausing slightly to catch his breath, then darted off down an alleyway. He had thought, at the back of his mind, that he might know London better than whatever was trailing him did. He hoped that maybe he could lose it, or tire it out, or perhaps it might even lose interest. Unfortunately, Elliot Matthews was wrong, on all counts. In his haste to get away, he made a fatal mistake. He began to run even faster. Almost immediately he slipped on a mulch of leaves and lost his footing, falling to the ground with a smack. He picked himself up from the cobbles and tried to steady himself to carry on running. But it was far too late for that now. A presence appeared behind him, and time seemed to slow. Elliot knew in his head and his heart that it was over. This was the end. Slowly, finally, he turned to face his pursuer. And he screamed. In a dark converted studio just a few streets away, Nathan Goff remained oblivious to Elliot Matthews' plight. He'd been staring at the same sheet of canvas for most of the day, willing inspiration to strike him. A couple of times each hour, He'd picked up a paintbrush. Sometimes he simply waved it in phantom strokes. More often, he'd mix up colours on a palette, idly combining oils he'd never use. He sighed and sank back in his chair. He couldn't remember the last time he'd struggled so hard to paint. Painting had always been something he loved, something he had excelled at. Now, however, it was nothing more than a means to an end a way of making money by selling commissions. Not that he was working on a commission at the moment. He hadn't taken on any paid work since the death of his mother a few weeks earlier. Instead, he was focused on completing a project of his own. A personal piece. A portrait of his mother. Something to remember her by. Maybe even help him through his grief. Perhaps it was rather too soon for him to be thinking about such things, but he felt compelled to paint the portrait. He could hear his mother's voice in the back of his mind, urging him not to forget her, to find a way to keep her spirit alive.
The night of her funeral, Nathan had even thought he'd seen her in his studio. She had been just an abstract shape at first, reflected in the shards of a broken mirror. The figure never moved, so to begin with he didn't notice it at all. It was only as the hours drew on that he became aware of a strange sensation, almost as if there was somebody else in the room, someone watching him. His mother. Since then, he could feel his mother's presence growing stronger with each passing night. He knew, somehow, that she was always standing over him, observing him work. At first it was almost comforting. His very own guardian angel, come to protect him. Then as the weeks drew on, he couldn't shake the notion she was judging him. Even now he could hear her, clear as day, sometimes encouraging, often criticising, but always forcing him to carry on with his work. I gave you life, she reminded him. Now you will grant me mine. Nathan wasn't quite sure what she meant by this. He stared blankly at the canvas, hoping for an answer. Then when it was clear that none was coming, he leaped out of his chair and, with a yawn, grabbed a coat on the way to the door. I need some air, he told the empty room, slamming the door behind him. As the chimes of Big Ben struck seven, a 1950s London police box materialised on the city's embankment, shrouded in a haze of mist and drizzle. Its door snapped sharply inwards, and a young girl stepped out. She wore a jacket adorned with badges, and with her nickname, Ace, emblazoned in large, stark letters across the back. She shivered, taking in the dismal sight in front of her. "'Your aunt a right winner here, Professor,' she huffed, yelling back inside the TARDIS. "'This place is cold, dark, dreary, and damp!' "'Good job I brought a brolly, then, isn't it?' replied the older man, who stepped out after her. He wore a light cream linen jacket, checked trousers, and a distinctive question-mark decorated pullover. He popped a straw hat onto his head to finish off the ensemble. Neither one of them had dressed for the weather or the period. London, 1887, the doctor grinned, raising his voice above the sound of the falling rain. He opened his umbrella and held it above Ace's head offering her what precious little shelter he was able to. She smiled and huddled closer to him as they strolled gently off along the river. It occurred to Ace that London never really changed. Even now, a century before she'd grow up there, it all seemed weirdly familiar. True, the lamps were ablaze with gas instead of electric, and there was a distinct lack of modern skyscrapers on the horizon but there was still the inimitable bustle of Londoners, the unmistakable stench of the Thames, and, of course, the awful British weather. Even the Tower of London hadn't changed much, though, in fairness, that was probably to be expected. "'You have to appreciate this city's ambition,' the doctor said cheerily. "'Just look at it all. The people, the sprawling architecture. Difficult to believe that this is a London still in its infancy.' Yeah, I guess, Ace conceded a little reluctantly. But it's not exactly London's heyday, is it? The doctor looked puzzled. How do you mean? Well, you know, 1887. It's a bit of a dark period, isn't it? 
all smog and slums and street urchins and... Oh, yeah, wait. Jack the Ripper. The Ripper murders won't take place for another year, the doctor replied. Unfortunately, there's nothing we can do about them. Or rather, nothing we can do now. Well, not that I've already done. Or perhaps even will do. Time travels funny like that. Ace groaned. She hated when the doctor mangled his tenses. It was one of the few downsides to travelling with a Time Lord. So what you're basically saying is that it's not all bad, she said. Oh, Ace, the doctor sighed. Nothing's ever entirely bad, just as nothing can ever be entirely good. Lifetimes spent travelling the universe have shown me that much. He offered her a reassuring smile. But no, right here, right now, London isn't such a terrible place to be. Trust me. Ace was almost ready to relent and take his word for this, when an anguished cry echoed abruptly through the streets. She couldn't help raising an eyebrow. You were saying? But the doctor didn't respond. Instead, he licked the tip of his index finger and held it up to the chill night air. If he could work out which direction the wind was coming from, he might just be able to pinpoint the victim's whereabouts. He closed his eyes and focused on the voice, blotting out all other sounds around him. This way, he barked, just up beyond the tower. Ace didn't need telling twice. Together, they ran towards Whitechapel as fast as they could, and since the horrible screaming never stopped, they didn't either. As they rounded a corner onto one of the side streets, they stumbled upon a wholly unexpected sight. A dishevelled young man was lying in the middle of the road, curled up on his hands and knees, crying out for someone, anyone, to help. However, it was immediately clear why nobody had. Gordon Bennett, Ace blurted under her breath. Above the stranger's body, suspended in the air, a host of abstract figures spiralled round him. Occasionally they even looked like people, though when they did it was only for the briefest of moments. For the most part, they were more like the embers of a fire caught on the wind, abstract sparks picked out in unusual patterns, threatening to resemble a far larger, more sinister form. Each of them glowed a sickly, eerie green, burning crisply through the murk of London's smog. They howled like a building gale, hounding their victim. The doctor hurried towards them. As he advanced, their wails grew louder, and the specks of spectre vanished into the air. A dread silence fell across the street. Are you all right? the doctor asked, softly resting a hand on the young man's shoulder. It took the stranger a moment to register the doctor, his head still buried firmly in his hands. When he finally looked up, he seemed both relieved and haunted. Thank you, he said quickly, catching his breath. Don't mention it, the doctor smiled, and offered the young man a handkerchief. I'm the doctor, incidentally, and this is my young friend Ace, she interrupted a little too keenly. Nice to meet you, she trailed off, and gave the slightest cough prompting the man to finish her sentence. Oh, er, uh, my name is Nathan, he replied a little unsteadily. 
Then, as if they might have heard of him, Nathan Goff? Nice to make your acquaintance, Mr. Goff. The doctor helped the man to his feet. I hope we didn't disturb anything just now. Nathan glared at him incredulously. It wasn't you I was disturbed by. Here, yeah, bit freaky, wasn't it? Ace agreed. What were those things? What did they look like? I, uh, I don't know. To Ace's surprise, she found herself hesitating. She knew full well what the things she'd seen had looked like. To her, they'd looked like ghosts. But she didn't want to say that. Not in front of the doctor. She'd been travelling with him for long enough that she knew such things weren't real. If it looked like a ghost and sounded like a ghost, chances were it wasn't anything of the sort. No. She knew better than that. There was bound to be a rational explanation. If I didn't know any better, the doctor said, I'd say they looked like ghosts. Typical, Ace thought. Of course he'd say that. No such thing, snapped Nathan. The dead do not come back. When they pass, they are lost forever. We have to accept that. We have to. Anxiously, he dusted himself down, brushing dirt from his sleeve. He looked about him, getting his bearings. Now, if you don't mind, he told them politely, I really ought to be on my way. Thank you both again for your... assistance. The pleasure was all ours, the doctor doffed his hat. Have a good evening, won't you? Nathan didn't say another word. Instead, he began to walk in the other direction, stopping only once or twice to make sure of his location. Ace instinctively moved to follow him, but the doctor held her back. Professor, she protested, what are you doing? Shouldn't we follow him? The doctor pressed a finger to his lips. Not yet, he whispered. He's nervous enough as it is, without us adding any more to his troubles. Besides which, he keeps checking over his shoulder. He'd be bound to spot us. So what do we do then? We wait a minute, give him some distance, and then we follow him. Ace nodded. So there is something going on here after all. Oh, yes, the doctor smiled. Indubitably. He had a mischievous twinkle in his eye. Come on, keep to the shadows, and follow me. When Nathan returned to his home, he poured himself a very large glass of something medicinal, followed by another, then finally slumped into one of the armchairs by the window, holding a third. He felt his entire body shudder at that moment, partly due to the temperature of the room, but mostly because of what he'd experienced out on the street. If it hadn't been for that strange little man, the doctor and his friend. Nathan dismissed the thought quickly. He didn't want to consider what might have happened if they hadn't found him. And yet it all seemed even more hopeless now. He'd gone out to clear his head, perhaps even forget about his troubles. But it seemed there was no escaping them. His demons followed him everywhere he went, and now something worse had joined them. He heard his mother's voice inside his head, still tinged with bitter disappointment. What about your work? she rasped. I can't, Nathan protested aloud feeling more than a little sorry for himself. He drained the contents of his glass, 
and set it down. Painting's not that easy. It shouldn't be easy. It requires time and thought, and above all else, passion. You used to find painting easy. What's changed? Nathan choked back his reply. He didn't want to tell her it was her fault, that her death had had such an impact on him. He didn't want her to feel guilty for holding him back. Or worse still, he didn't want her to think that he blamed her for his own shortcomings. Not that she was actually there, of course. She couldn't be. Nathan knew that. And yet... I'll finish the painting soon, he said, more to himself than to her. Tonight, his mother insisted. I... Nathan hesitated. You don't understand. I can't. I physically can't. Oh, but you can, she urged. You can do anything you put your mind to. Isn't that what I always used to tell you? You, my boy, you can achieve the impossible. Nathan shuddered again, as though he could feel the chill caress of her hand on the back of his neck. You have to carry on working at this difficult time. You know that. But thinking of you, trying to paint you, not enough time has passed. Then you must paint something else, his mother instructed. A self-portrait, perhaps. That handsome young face of yours, captured forever in pigments and oil. What a masterpiece that would be. Nathan considered this for a moment. He'd been so consumed with grief that it hadn't occurred to him that he could use that sense of loss. He could exploit how he was feeling and pour all those dreadful emotions into his work. After all, art didn't need to be happy to be good. He sprang from his chair with a newfound sense of purpose, gathering his tools up from around the room and began to think of his new composition. That's when the tapping started. Is it me, or is it getting cold around here? A shivered as she and the doctor arrived on Nathan's street. The doctor pulled a fob watch from his pocket, then flipped it open and held it up in front of him. It chirruped a sequence of strange mechanical trills. You're right, he confirmed, interpreting the watch's burble of data. There's been a recent drop in ambient temperature. Some atmospheric disturbances, not to mention instances of temporal distortion, all of which suggest we're in the right place. He snapped the case of the fobwatch shut. Now we just need to work out which of these buildings our young friend Mr. Goff resides in. If you mean where does he live, I think I've a fair idea. Oh, yeah. Ace pointed up to a third-floor window a few doors down. Look. Obediently, the doctor did as he was told. There was a light in one of the windows, not the golden reassuring flicker of candlelight, however, but the unnatural sickly green sparks that they'd seen above Nathan Goff in the alleyway. I mean, it's just a hunch, Ace continued a little smugly, but I'm guessing it's probably that one. The doctor hurried over to the house, then bounded up the steps that led to the porch and rapped his knuckles four times on the door. He waited a few seconds for a response, then knocked again. This time, he heard footsteps coming down a staircase, followed by the sound of a key turning in the lock. The door swung suddenly open, 
revealing an extremely flustered Nathan. Mr. Goff! What a coincidence! The doctor beamed, trying a trifle too hard to sound surprised. We had no idea you lived around here. Nathan eyed the doctor warily. You remember my young friend, Ace? The doctor said. Hiya! She waved, bouncing up to greet him. Mind if we come outside? It's a little bit wet out. Nathan wasn't sure that was a good idea. He wasn't very sure of anything anymore. I'd rather you didn't, he said, keeping his voice low. Now is... now is not a good time. Oh, I know all about time, the doctor blustered, barging past Nathan and into the hallway. He shook the rain from his umbrella and started marching up the staircase, calling back behind him, Strictly between you and me, the bad times tend to be my speciality. I take it upstairs is where you'd rather we didn't go. Nathan's dumbstruck silence could only mean yes. Splendid. I thought as much. The doctor stomped from step to step. Come along now, Ace. No time to lose. Ace smiled apologetically at Nathan. Sorry about him, she said. If it makes you feel any better, he knows what he's doing. Most of the time. Ace could see from Nathan's expression this wasn't helping, so she tried a different tack. Last one up, Saratkin, she cried, tagging him on the shoulder and dashing upstairs. You really don't want to go up there, he shouted, but he had no choice but to follow them. When the doctor entered Nathan's studio, he instantly knew something was wrong. A foreboding atmosphere permeated the room. The air tasted oddly stale, and the hairs on the back of his neck were beginning to prickle. He tried to make out what detail he could, but aside from a couple of half-burned candles on the mantel, the room was wreathed in darkness. I'm afraid I'm unused to house guests, Nathan explained, following them both hurriedly into the room. He immediately threw open the curtains. Not that it helped much. The moonlight was struggling to break through the rain clouds. Interesting place you have here, the doctor said, wandering casually around the room, picking up ornaments. Creepy, more like, Ace muttered, flicking through a discarded sketch pad. You like drawing, then? I'm an artist, Nathan admitted, though I'm not sure like comes into it. Rather, I'd consider it my calling. Ah! The temperamental type, the doctor chuckled. That would explain why it's been targeting you. Why? What has? What are you talking about? You tell me, Mr. Goff. The doctor tapped the handle of his umbrella against his chin. You tell me. Before Nathan could answer, a low, hard thump sounded from the corner of the room. It was as though something large and solid had hit the other side of the wall. What was that? Ace instinctively turned in the direction of the noise. Another thump boomed, followed by another, then another. Hey, I think it's coming from over here. Ace moved awkwardly into the corner of the room, shifting the paints around Nathan's easel. Can't see where, though. The doctor and Nathan moved to join her. There came another thump. I think, the doctor said, that it might be coming from the canvas itself. He pointed towards the easel Ace was crouched beside, 
where a broad frame had been suspiciously covered from view with a tattered old dust sheet. Care to tell us what you're working on, Mr. Goff? It's nothing, just a personal piece, Nathan answered quickly. A portrait of my... of my mother. She died recently. Did she indeed? Well, let's take a look, shall we? Before Nathan could stop him, the doctor had whipped away the dust sheet with a magician's flourish, revealing the image that lay beneath. If it had once been a loving depiction of Nathan's mother, it had drastically changed. Her features lacked the warmth she'd had in life, and the face was hard and sallow. It was most definitely not how Nathan would have chosen to remember her. Either that's not your mother, whispered Ace, or you really didn't like her very much. Nathan shook his head in disbelief. I, I don't understand. I think I do, said the doctor, plucking the fob watch from his pocket. This area's rife with temporal instabilities. The others looked confused. Put simply, that canvas is now a weak point in the fabric of space and time, like a doorway, a portal to another aspect of reality altogether. Something's breaking through. Those things we saw outside? Those ghosts? An angry thump punctuated his words. In truth, they weren't ghosts at all, but something else. I knew it, thought Ace. There are all manner of abstract creatures we don't even know about yet, entities that stalk the gulfs of the space-time vortex, beings unlike anything you'll have ever known here on Earth. They exist in five dimensions all at once. They're here, and yet they're not here. Another thump. This time it shook the easel. But how can that be? asked Nathan. How can we not see them? Because they exist in a different dimension, explained the doctor. Think of it this way. We are three-dimensional beings, yes? We exist. The pictures you paint are only two-dimensional. They also exist. And yet, the subjects you depict in your paintings couldn't even begin to conceive of a third dimension, never mind a fourth, or even a fifth. So you're saying... We're basically stickmen, Ace suggested, not very helpfully. But no, those phantoms. Nathan was struggling to process what the doctor was saying. They came for me. They know me. Not at all. Just insubstantial glimpses of a dimension beyond our own. But the fact we can see them means they're getting closer. They're growing stronger minute by minute. And I think it's thanks to you, Mr. Goff. Me? Of course. Entities like this feast upon the abstract. They devour concepts and emotions, meaning creative talents like yours are the perfect target. Add to that the death of your mother, and you become the perfect puppet. They're using her to manipulate you. Nathan heard his mother in his head again, warning him not to heed the doctor's words. Who was this stranger, anyway? She knew him better than this doctor ever could. After all, he was her special baby boy and always would be. Thump. I don't know what to do, Nathan sighed, pulling up a chair. Then listen to me. 
The doctor grabbed Nathan's arm as he reached for the easel. You can't allow them to get any closer. You have to stop this. Thump, thump, thump. Ace recoiled as the portrait started to shift. Its features twisted horribly. He will continue. The image rasped, its green eyes rolling to the back of its head. His work must be completed. Mother? Nathan, no, it's not your mother, the doctor warned. You know it isn't. It's using your talent, exploiting you to establish a link. These things, these monsters, they feed off abstract concepts. Work like this, they capture a specific point in time. In this case, a time before your mother's death. But that time has well and truly passed. I'm sorry, but that's how they're doing it. They're leeching off the abstract years that never were, between how she used to be in the image and how she is now, reliving happy times. It's the most basic form of time travel, and they're exploiting that through you to travel here. Nathan's mother's face snarled, and the canvas creased around it. Pay him no heed, child, it hissed. Give me life. Suddenly, a spectral hand tore through the canvas, ripping at the fringes of reality and grabbing Nathan firmly round the throat. Give me your life! The doctor tried to wrest the hand away, but the creature was far too strong. Nathan had formed a link between dimensions, and the monster was beginning to take his place. Nathan could hear its voice inside his mind now, screaming in triumph, its supernatural life force coursing through him. He tried to scream, but couldn't. His will was already being crushed from inside his body. You humans make this so easy, the creature gloated. Then Nathan heard another voice cry out. It was Ace. Oi, grot bags, she yelled, picking up a jar of murky liquid. Get out of his head, yeah? Ace threw the liquid at the canvas, smearing it with her hands and distorting the image. Immediately, the force's influence started to wane. Nathan's senses were taking hold again, and the creature's grip round his throat was beginning to weaken. It howled at Ace in fury, releasing its hold on Nathan, then punched back through the canvas, leaving behind nothing but a smear of muddy oils. It was as if it had never been there. Ace! The doctor's voice cut sharply across the room. That was extremely irresponsible of you. She looked like a wounded puppy. Oh, but also extremely resourceful and really rather brilliant, the doctor continued. I wish I'd thought of it. What did she do? asked Nathan, getting his breath back. His neck was stained with dark paint from the creature's claws. She disrupted the link with the help of a handy jar of paint thinner, the doctor replied. As I said, it needed that painting of your mother to form a link with you, to feast off the years between life and death. Spoil the image, and you spoil the link, giving it no choice but to retreat back to its own dimension. So that's it now. She's gone. My mother's gone. 
Your mother has been gone for a long time, Nathan, the doctor told him solemnly. But it hasn't gone. It's just not here anymore, but it won't be long before it finds another victim, another target much like you. He sighed and considered his options. We need to draw it back here. I'm not sure I like the sound of this, Ace muttered. All we need to do is give it a target. The doctor smiled, taking up a seat next to Nathan. Mr. Goff, I'd like you to paint my portrait, if you'd be so kind. I... I'm sorry, Nathan stammered. You'd like me to do what? I know how it sounds, but trust me, I know what I'm doing. The doctor removed his hat and struck a pose. Remember, it needn't be perfect, just enough of a likeness that it can force a link through me. If you're certain. Absolutely, the doctor nodded. Ace watched as Nathan frantically mixed together oils on his palette, sweeping vague shapes of colour across the canvas. Within seconds, the image of his mother had all but gone, replaced instead by the indistinct face of the doctor. Quickly, Nathan worked up detail, the sharp, steely eyes, the furrowed brow, and the doctor felt his senses slipping away from him. He could just about make out Ace encouraging Nathan as he worked. Then silence fell, and the doctor realised he was not in his own dimension. He had travelled across to the creature's realm, and found himself surrounded by a host of fierce intelligences. Now their minds were linked. Their thoughts were inside his thoughts. He could see what they saw, feel exactly what they felt, and he became aware of their intentions should they ever arrive on Earth. He knew in that moment what they would choose to do to the human race, things that must never be allowed to happen. So the doctor made them an offer. I know you can hear me, he yelled, his voice echoing through the void between dimensions. Our minds are linked, which means you must already know who I am. The creature's voice lashed out. You call yourself Doctor, it growled. Yes, and I'm here to make you an offer. A ripple of mocking laughter swirled around him. Right now, you're trying to break into our reality through a painting. You're harnessing a young man's talent, using all his energy and emotion to feed your own ghastly ends. I can feel you trying to force access, using me and my image as the bridge. It worked before. It shall work again. I'm allowing you the chance to walk away, the doctor said. You don't need Earth. You don't even need our dimension. You have the entire vortex at your disposal, the fourth and fifth dimensions of space and time. These dimensions are insubstantial, raged the creature. We seek physical form. Then I'm sorry for you, because I cannot allow that to happen, the doctor sighed. 
I really did hope you might change your mind when you realised what you're up against. Believe me when I tell you that I'm sorry. Suddenly, the entity started to struggle to contain the doctor's will. The more it fought to maintain control, the less it had. I'm a Time Lord, the doctor explained with a voice of quiet steel. I'm afraid I don't age like human beings. In fact, I barely age at all. Even when I die, my image changes completely. So you see, there's nothing for you to exploit here. No abstract differential between the me I am right now and the me I might one day become. Meaning, you're trapped inside my mind. There's no way out for you. The creature tried to move, but found it couldn't. It was like an insect caught in amber. In fact, it could scarcely think. Luckily for me, a Time Lord's mind is more than enough to contain a feeble little being like you, the doctor continued cheerily. I'm afraid there's probably a fair bit of clutter in there. My apologies, but I'm certain you'll soon make yourself at home there, given time. The entity didn't respond. It couldn't respond. All of its power had been lost through the doctor's image. In that moment, it knew this was the end. It tried to scream, but it couldn't. At that very same instant, back in Nathan's studio, just as the artist completed his final brushstroke, the doctor groggily returned to his senses. He breathed a great sigh of relief and patted Nathan gently on the shoulder. Excellent work, Mr. Goff, he smiled, hiding his exhaustion. The painting's not bad, either. Now, I don't suppose you'd happen to have a kettle. Half an hour later, having said their farewells and indulged in a pot of restorative Earl Grey, the Doctor and Ace were back on the nighttime streets of London, heading in the direction of the TARDIS. The rain had finally stopped, the clouds had parted, and even though there was still a heavy fog, suddenly... All seemed calm. Is that it, then? Ace asked chirpily, skimming stones into the Thames. She waited for each satisfying plop before throwing another. For now, yes, said the doctor, thinking it over. But others like it are still out there. They always will be. That's how the universe works. But they can't break through, yeah? Not like that, I mean. Not again. I might have deterred them for a while, but when has that ever stopped anything? I'm sure one of them will try again at some point. All they need is an image, after all. It doesn't even have to be a painting. It could be a simple sketch, a Polaroid, a selfie. A what now? Never mind, the doctor chuckled, taking Ace's arm in his. Come on. Let's get back to the TARDIS.